Deuteronomy 4, verses 30 through 40, and then Deuteronomy 5, 6. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might show that might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you the land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. His commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to CTK. If this is your first time here, you might not know that we are not just uh, this one church, but we are a network of churches that meet all over the city of Boston. Every fall, uh, these, our network of churches, we get together and we pick a book of the Old Testament uh, to preach through. And this year, we picked the book of Deuteronomy. And... If you are not totally excited by the choice of Deuteronomy for the fall, I don't completely blame you. Deuteronomy is one of those books that can be kind of hard to read. Deuteronomy is one of those books like a a pastor, I know he said, God put books like Deuteronomy in the Bible to see if we were really serious about reading the Bible, right? I mean, of of course, that's not really the case. And I I hope that as we read through this book over the the next few weeks, as we start to study it, you'll come to see, like I have, that this book is a treasure. That this book is a great gift to us. That this book is a living testament of God's faithfulness to his people. And not just his faithfulness to a people from the distant past who lived thousands of years ago, but his faithfulness to a people that carries on up into this day and goes on into the redemption of the world. Deuteronomy, at its essence, is a book that teaches us who God is and how his people should respond to him. And so I genuinely believe if you pay attention, if you read this book, if you take it seriously, it will absolutely change your life. It will absolutely transform your heart. But, admittedly, at first glance, Deuteronomy can be a little bit confusing. If you look through Deuteronomy and you try to read it, it can seem like it's just a random collection of stories and some some weird laws that may not totally make sense. So this morning I want to deal with that. This morning I want to try to clear up what's going, in this, going on in this book. I want us to try to figure out uh, what is going on here 
and how it relates to us. Now, for us to answer that question, for us to understand this book, there are really three things that you need to know about Deuteronomy. First, you need to know that Deuteronomy is essentially a contract. The book of Deuteronomy is essentially a contract. And secondly, that contract has a history that goes along with it. And thirdly, that history demands a response from us. So that's what I want us to recognize, that, that Deuteronomy is a contract, that contract has a history, and that history demands a response from us. So when I say Deuteronomy is a contract, let me just put it this way. If you were to hear the words, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today, what would be going on? A wedding, right? We know that those words signal the beginning of a wedding. And just like we can read those words and know exactly what was coming next, an ancient people would have been able to pick up the book of Deuteronomy and they would have instantly recognized what kind of writing this was. They would have known that this book is a kind of contract. And for us to understand this book, we need to recognize that as well. We need to know what kind of contract this is. Because this book is a contract, and more, more specifically, it's, it's a treaty. It is a treaty between a king and his people. And this isn't the only one we have. Archaeologists have uncovered dozens of these kinds of contracts. Now, usually these contracts are not between God and his people, but they're usually between like some kind of local lord and a group of people that he is going to enter into uh, a promise with, a group of people that he is promising to protect. And whenever we've found one of these contracts, they have always followed a very similar pattern. They've always had this exact same outline, the outline that Deuteronomy has as well. There's five parts. First, there is a preamble where the Lord declares his name and his greatness. Then there is a section of history, a historical prologue where the Lord describes all of the great things that he has done to bring them up to this point. Then there's a list of stipulations, the rules. Here are the terms of the agreement. Here are the things that you are required to do if I am going to be your Lord. And then fourthly, there is a section of blessings and curses. And the blessings and curses, they tell us all the bad things that will happen if we disobey and all the wonderful things that will happen if we do obey. And finally, at the very end, there is some kind of agreement, a ratification or a renewal of this relationship. Now, these types of treaties, when they came out, they were usually made uh, at a certain time. They were made either when, I don't know how it would happen, a, a king would wander across a group of people who wanted to enter into his kingdom. When he would enter into a new relationship with these people. Or, it would occur when they needed to renew the covenant. So, say, one generation had died off, or say... Uh, power was transitioning from one king to another, there would be a time to renew the contract. Now Deuteronomy falls in that second category. Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal document. And even the name Deuteronomy tells us that. Deuteronomy, the word, it means the second law. 
But of course, it's not a second law, right? It's not the 11th through 20th commandments we find in Deuteronomy, right? It's a retelling of the law. It is a recap of what you find in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. It is a repackaging, an elaboration, a retelling of all the stuff that has come before and it is being retold for a new generation of people in Israel. So this book, it is a contract renewing the relationship between God and his people. It is a book that serves as a reminder for them and also a reminder for us of who God is, what he has done, and how his people are meant to live in his kingdom. And so for that reason, this is a a really crucial book for us. It's a really important book for us to study, for us to understand, and for us to take to heart. And much of the study, much of what we're going to dive into in the weeks after this, revolves around the Ten Commandments. But I want to tell you that unless you recognize this whole contract thing, unless you recognize that all of the Ten Commandments come to us inside of a covenant, you'll never really understand them. The Ten Commandments come to us in a contract with the Lord. They come to us in a treaty with the king of the universe. So why is that so important? Why does that really matter? How, why does that affect how we read the Ten Commandments? Well, I think it's pretty simple. It's because if there is no God at the other end of the Ten Commandments, if there is no God who has entered into a relationship with us and who has made promises to us, then the Ten Commandments don't matter. Who cares? I was just listening to this interview this week with a, a, a woman, and I would describe her worldview as opposed to scripture. She was just talking about her life and and telling about the things that, that she believed and as she went on to describe her life it became apparent that she dismissed every single value that the Ten Commandments explains. In fact I would I would say she lived a life where she was confident in her blatant disregard for the laws of God. And as I listened to this interview, I started hearing a lot of questions in my mind. A lot of questions maybe that, that you ask or your friends ask. Like, who cares? Why bother her? What, what difference does it really make if, if that's the way she wants to live her life? Who is to say that the things that she believes are wrong and the things that, that the Bible says are right? Even if her life is destructive, even if it's, it, it might injure people around her or the people that care about her, what is the basis for anyone to say my way is right and your way is wrong? Maybe, maybe you think that way sometimes. Well, the truth is, if there is no God, then those questions are completely valid. If there is no God, then... There really is no right way. At best, the right way is just what most people agree on, right? If there is no God who is the source of good, then there really isn't anything. There's no such thing as as good and bad. There's no such thing as righteousness and evil. There is no truth. 
That is actually true. There is only society's ever-changing consensus. There is only our idea of what we think might be good. Right and wrong are just something we've made up. So why bother? But if that's how you think, I want to say that objection, it cuts both ways. Because on the other side of that, if there is no God, if there is no God who declares that truth is true, if there is no real difference between good and bad, then it means that all of your deepest instincts are absolutely and utterly wrong. It means that that suffering and that pain that you see, that injustice that makes you weep, that racism and that hatred that you instinctively feel is bad, well, it means it's not really evil. The world's just told you that it's evil. It's something that the world has decided is bad, but nothing is really and truly bad. You see, if there is no God who can define good for us, then there is also no reason that we should ever expect justice. There is no reason why we should ever believe that evil people will be judged. If there is really no difference between right and wrong, then this world that seems so broken, this world that our instincts tell us has so much wrong with it, well, it's not broken. And if, this were, if there is no God, then, then the wicked have nothing to fear. And the weak and the oppressed and those in need have nothing to hope for. If there is no God, then the way that woman that I heard interviewed was talking is right. If there is no God, there's really no purpose to our existence. And we might as well just live the way that we see fit. Who cares what other people think? But thankfully, we can't accept that, right? Thankfully, our hearts instinctively reject it. Even as I'm saying it to you, our souls are always looking for answers. And while the philosophy of this world might tell you, reject your instincts, they're all wrong, Deuteronomy comes and it answers us powerfully by saying, yes, there is a God. And yes, he is near. And yes, he loves his people. And he has promised their deliverance. He has signed a treaty with them. He has made a contract with them. And this book is that contract. And that brings us to the next point. This contract that we have here in Deuteronomy comes with a history. Now, I said this book is a, a covenant renewal document. And I told you that every covenant renewal, it begins with a long section of history. And that's what we've been, that's what's here in the first few chapters of Deuteronomy. So I just want you to get there with me for a minute. Imagine the scene that starts out the book of Deuteronomy. Picture Moses. He is an extremely old man. Okay, don't picture Charlton Heston. I know you're all picturing Charlton Heston. I'm just going to tell you, don't picture him. Picture somebody else. Picture somebody who was born and raised in Egypt. <laughs> Moses, an old man near the end of his life, old and frail. He is one of the last men who is living from his generation. And he knows that he is just about to die. He has been leading Israel for over 40 years. 
And finally, after decades of, of a grueling life in this extremely harsh desert climate, God has finally come and he has said to the people, it is time to enter into the land that I've promised you. Only, Moses, you are not going to lead the people. Joshua is going to lead the people. A new generation is going to enter into the promised land. You are not going to enter in the promised land. And so, here's Moses standing before this generation of people who have grown up in the wilderness, before they are about to enter into the promised land, finally, before he is about to hand off the torch to this new leader, and he stands up and he gives this history. He reminds the nation how they got there in the first place. That's what the first four chapters of Deuteronomy is. He's basically telling a story. And that story that Moses tells is just a small version of the story that all of Scripture is telling us. That story is a small version of the story all Scripture tells us, which is the story of God's mercy towards an unfaithful people. That's the story all of Scripture is telling. The story of God's mercy and faithfulness and steadfast love to a people who are disobedient and unfaithful to him. And so if you're not familiar with the story, I'm just going to briefly recap it for you. The story of Moses and, and the people of Israel. It basically, it begins in the very first chapter of the book of Exodus. The Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt. And they are crying out to God. And God promises to bring them a deliverer. God calls this man, this Hebrew man, who also happens to be the adopted son of the Pharaoh's daughter. He calls Moses. And he calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt and into this new land that he promises them. In Exodus 3, he says, I'm gonna, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. And then, the Exodus story, it goes on to recount all of these miraculous things that Moses does, uh, all of these miraculous things that God does as he leads the people out of Egypt. And if you've never read Exodus before, you still probably know these stories. Because these are the ones that are in the movies, right? The plagues, the parting of the sea, God accompanying the people in a pillar of fire. And by the end of the book of Exodus, the people are free. They are out of Egypt and they've come to this land called Horeb, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and he gives the people the Ten Commandments. They build a tabernacle in the wilderness and God's spirit descends on the tabernacle. And it's this great joyful celebratory moment. All the people are excitedly looking into the future where they're going to enter into the promised land. The end of Exodus kind of ends like the first Star Wars movie ends, right? Everybody's happy. Everybody's got medals around their necks. What could possibly go wrong now? And then Moses picks up the story for us in Deuteronomy chapter 1. We find out that in Horeb they rested for a while. They worshipped for a while. They got used to being free. And then God spoke to them. Deuteronomy 1.6 he says, 
You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites, to all their neighbors in the Arabah. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them, to give to them and to their offspring after them. So he says, you've been here long enough. It's time. It is time to go and take the promised land. You, it's time to go and get it. And so they rise and they go and they go to the edge of the promised land. And when they get there, they find that there are already people in it. And not only are there already people, but they are, are big people. They are scary people. From my reading, it seems like pretty much everybody looks like the rock or, or the mountain from Game of Thrones. They're, they're big people. They're terrifying people. And so they get scared. Despite everything that they've seen God do, despite all of these amazing and impressive miracles, the people refuse to obey God. They get right up to the edge of the promised land and they refuse to go in. And so God punishes them for their faithlessness. But interestingly, he doesn't punish them like you might imagine. He doesn't crush them. He doesn't open up the earth and swallow them. Instead, he gives them what they want. He doesn't let them go in. Instead, he says, for the rest of your lives, you're going to wander. For the rest of this generation, you will be here. It says, the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, none of these men will, of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give their fathers. But the book of Deuteronomy, that's just chapter one. The book of Deuteronomy is not a story of God's judgment. The book of Deuteronomy is a story of God's faithfulness. Of God's faithfulness to an undeserving people. And if you go back and you pick up numbers and you read the rest of this story, you realize that as the people wandered through the wilderness, they didn't get any better. These people grumbled. These people complained. They blamed Moses for all their problems. And eventually they blamed God for all of their problems. But despite that, despite their whining, despite their complaining, despite their sin... God didn't leave them. He stayed with them as they wandered. He stayed with them as they raised the next generation. And finally, as we get up to this place in the book, he calls them again. As that generation has died off, he calls them again to enter the promised land. And so that brings us back to the moment where Moses is an old man standing in the wilderness and he is speaking to these, these children who have grown up in the wilderness and now he is reminding them of where they have come from. And they have a chance to respond. Now it's important for us to know that history. It's important for us to know that story as we go into this book, but not just so you know Bible history, right? This isn't just going to be for us to... To, to win Bible trivia at the Behan or something like that. This is important for us to know because this history is ongoing. And this God who has made promises to these people in the wilderness is also a God who has made promises to you. This story is only a chapter of a much bigger story that God is telling 
One that begins not in Egypt, but that begins with God. With a God who created the world and who created everything in it. And he declared that this world was good. But in those very early moments, we rejected him. Instead of choosing him, instead of choosing his ways, we chose our own ways. And our attempt to live apart from God brought with it death. It brought sin. It brought pain. It brought suffering. And it brought separation from him. But even in the early chapters of that story, even in those very initial moments, in the book of Genesis, God tells us that in the midst of our rebellion... God promised that he would send a deliverer. That he would send a rescuer. The way Genesis puts it is one who would crush the head of the serpent. One who would ultimately defeat sin and death and bring in righteousness. One day, a man who would one day end all rebellion. Who would bring justice to this earth finally and once and for all. Of course, the bad part is... If God's going to do that, if God is going to bring righteousness and holiness and justice, then we are in big trouble. Because we stand on the wrong side of that justice. Because we are not very different from those Israelites, are we? We are not very different from those people who spent their time wandering in the wilderness. We are rebellious just like they are. We live lives according to our own rules, just like they did. And even those of us who would call ourselves Christians, we know exactly what it's like to look into the promised land and refuse to enter. Don't we? We know what it's like to see God's calling and instead to choose something that seems easier. To choose to go our own way. We're all guilty here. If there really is a God who has promised to bring an end to rebellion, to bring an end to sin, then we should be scared because we stand condemned. Fearful. That's the right attitude. And I imagine as Moses recounted this history, as he reminded them of where they came from, I imagine that's how a lot of these Israelites felt when he reminded them of who they really were. But then, Moses also reminds us of who God is. Deuteronomy 4, he says, The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Because he loved your fathers, and he chose their offspring after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. He reminded them that this judge, this righteous and holy and, and terrifying God is also a merciful God. He is also a God who loves his people and promises to deliver them. And these Israelites, they knew that God had sent Moses to deliver them. But we, today, in 2017, 
with the benefit of all of the scriptures before us, we know that God has sent to us a deliverer far greater than Moses. You see, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise of deliverance. He is the ultimate proof that God loves his people. Moses came down from the mountain. He delivered the Ten Commandments. He showed the people the path to righteousness. But he could not do a single thing to make them righteous. He could not do a single thing to make them holy. But Jesus was the Ten Commandments. Jesus was the Word of God made flesh. And when He came to earth, He kept the law of God perfectly. He lived a completely righteous life. And Scripture tells us He did that as our substitute. He did that in our place. Moses took the people out of Egypt. He delivered them from their temporary bondage and slavery. But Jesus has delivered us from our eternal slavery. Jesus has delivered us from our eternal bondage by taking the punishment for our sins. He took God's discipline and wrath on the cross for us. And for everyone who trusts in him, it says that he gives us perfection. He makes us righteous. He gives us his holy record to be our own. And that is the history that's in this book. That is the history that we have to keep in mind as we read the story of Deuteronomy. We have to remember as we open up these pages that God has been faithful to his promise of deliverance. First through Moses who brought the law, but ultimately through Jesus who fulfilled it. The contract has a history. And here's what all that means for us. Lastly, it means that we have a responsibility when we open up this book. Jesus is the climax of this history that began in the Garden of Eden, that carried on through the wilderness and up into this very moment. Jesus' gospel is a history that we must respond to. When the Ten Commandments open... They say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And those words are not only words for Israelites who lived thousands of years ago, but those are words that are meant to encapsulate and define all of the Christian life. Now, if this story isn't true, if this stuff is false, then, then truthfully, none of this matters. The Ten Commandments don't matter. They're just one choice in a bunch of different choices for how we might want to live our life. But if this story is true, then these are the most amazing words in the universe. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Because it means this. It means that before God asks anything of you, he gives you everything. Before God asks anything of you, 
He gives you his promise. Before he ever gives us a single command, he has already committed to save us completely. The living God, the perfect and holy righteous judge does not come first in wrath and judgment, but he comes first to us in relationship. He comes first to us in covenant. He comes first to us in sacrifice and in salvation. And this means that Christianity is different than every other religion on earth. Because our God does not say, here are the rules, keep them, follow them, and hopefully you're going to be good enough by the end. No, our God says, you're not good enough. You are hopeless apart from me, but I am good enough, and I'm here to save you. To anyone here who would admit their need, to anyone here who would confess their sin and unrighteousness, to anyone who could see that they are hopeless, to anyone who would cry out and cling to Christ, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, out of slavery to sin, out of slavery to death. He says, I am faithful to my promises. I have freed you completely. You are mine. And then... He gives the Ten Commandments. Then he says, here, my people, is how to live in my kingdom. Here, my people, is what it looks like to live a life under my protection. Do you get it? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? The covenant between God and man is not one that says, fix yourself and then I'll save you. It says, I have saved you, and now you are finally free to really live. If that's the kind of God we have, this awesome and powerful and righteous and holy God who has proven his love to us by giving himself on the cross, how could we possibly believe that our ways are better than his ways? How could we possibly continue living a life in rebellion against him? How could we possibly reject his call to faithfulness? And that's where you and I come in. If God is the Lord, then we owe him everything. But we are just like these people. We are just like that generation that wandered through the wilderness. We have tried to go our own way. We have grumbled and we have complained. And now, here we are with a choice before us. Now, here we stand, hearing the words of this book, and we have to make a decision. Will we renew the covenant? Or will we reject it? Will you reject him again? Will you decide again to go your own way? To live as you please and hope that maybe this time things are going to work out. That maybe this time things will be different. Maybe this time your heart's longings will finally be satisfied. Or will you come 
Will you come to the king and bow before him? Will you come to him in repentance and faith? Will you come to the covenant, Lord, and enter into this covenant with him? Will you come to him and find life? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this book. And we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that this truth is not just for a long time ago, but it's a truth for today. And I pray, Lord, that we would see you clearly today. That we would come to you. Lord, that we would bow before you and that you would transform our lives. Forgive us our sins. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. For anyone here who who is hearing this stuff for the first time. Lord, I pray that they would know that you are a God who longs to know them. I pray, Father, that you would give them the faith today to come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.